Okay, and hello everybody, we are back. One of the real advantages in doing the show in the before and after the break setup is that I can share something with you that I forgot to say in the first part of the episode. And there's one final note about the book profiled by Mark Hewitt, and that is that there could have been an inspiration for the Lake Berryessa costume worn by the Zodiac Killer from something called the Kelly Riot gear, or the Kelly Riot costume, that was used by the Australian police, because even looking at a photo of it, I cannot deny there are strong similarities between the two of them, and even though the Zodiac is writing these letters taunting law enforcement and taunting the police, he is also perhaps trying to be jealous of them in some way, or some people simply think that the Zodiac Killer was a police officer, member of law enforcement, that he had some type of training, and I think that there is a fair case that you can make in both directions. Of course, somebody like Mark Hewitt would not agree with that, because he thinks that the Zodiac Killer was not a member of law enforcement, but rather a PhD in mathematics, and I'm totally willing to listen to what different people have to say. But the only major difference I would expect is that I think that the Kelly riot gear would contain a lot more hard components, like with hard surfaces as opposed to the Lake Berryessa costume, but bear in mind that it would only be about trying to imitate it in some ways as opposed to making an actual authentic replica, kind of like only in visual distances, or the inspiration for the costume, as opposed to trying to pass any type of particular test. But once again, you could weigh in in the comment section down below, share your ideas about what do you think the Zodiac's inspiration for the Lake Berryessa costume was. And right now, I would like to get to your shout-outs from buymeacoffee.com. Anybody who supports the show on buymeacoffee.com will get a shout-out in future episodes on Zodiac Monday, and all of the contributions or donations will be used for things related to the channel, such as buying equipment or purchasing true crime books, so I can talk to you guys about them. And the first one comes to us from Jeff Jones, who says, Thank you for your work. Very interesting content. Always. I made sure to get you a coffee and will most likely continue to do so. Jeff Jones, thank you so much and very much appreciated. And the next one comes to us from Floyd Black 53 who says... Thank you for all your amazing work on the podcast, Ned. Keep it up and have some coffee. You guys are awesome. And there is another one, not from the buymeacoffee.com page, but from Aaron Aragon, who last week said that he had ordered some of the Black Box Online Radio t-shirts from the Teespring page and that they had just arrived. So Aaron, thank you so much for that. And yes, of course, there are many links in the description box that you could visit the Teespring page, which has the hooded sweatshirts, t-shirts, and the coffee mugs. And then there is the... Um, buymeacoffee.com page, and of course the book Killer on a White Horse, A Story of the Evening Watchman, and soon there will be a new book that will be released in the very near future, and I will just let you know a brief uh, preview. It's going to have three different stories, but one of them will be a sequel to Killer on a White Horse, so please feel free to keep your eyes and ears open for any news about that one. Now, I would like to move on to a different book discussion, and it's been great talking about Profile by Mark Hewitt, but I would like to talk about Lunches with Mr. Q, 
by Kevin Nelson because the cue is very important. It is for a particular individual named Shel Cavale. And I used to say on the channel that I always read seven or eight books at the same time. That's why I never finish any of them. These days I've gotten a little bit better at finishing them. But yes, this is the story of some guy who is interacting with an individual named Shel Cavale, who is a Zodiac killer suspect, but he is also perhaps the wealthiest Zodiac killer suspect out there, and he is the um, suspect of Mike Rodelli, who is the author of In the Shadow of Mount Diablo, as well as The Hunt for Zodiac. And Shel Cavale was an importer of cars, and perhaps the largest importer of certain types of vehicles on the West Coast, and he was very passionate about British motor cars when not a lot of other people were. But because Shulkavale was such a successful businessman, some of his business lessons have been incorporated into this book, Lunches with Mr. Q by Kevin Nelson. And there is even something called Mr. Q's 12 Rules for Successful Living. And I would like to share that with you. I think it's really odd that uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson wrote something called 12 Rules for Life. And, well, who needs that when you have Mr. Q's 12 Rules for Successful Living? Number one, trust your gut. Number two, listen to your heart and intuition. They will tell you the direction you need to go. Number three, if a deal goes bad, it goes bad. So be it. Put it behind you and be confident with your next one. Your next decision will be the right one. Number four, something good could happen. Remember that. Take an optimistic view of life. Number five, nothing is permanent in life, including you. Enjoy yourself, have fun. Number six, go easy on the indulgences. The best pleasures are the simplest. Number seven, dress nice. It will help you in sales and in many other departments of life as well. Number eight, listen to your friends and family. Just don't listen to them too much. Number nine, stand up for what you believe, no matter how unpopular or out of date it may seem to others. Number ten, take risks, blaze a trail, find the MGTC of your life and go with it. Number eleven, ninety-two years may seem like a long time, but it's really not. In the time you have, use it. Number twelve, and oh yes, drive beautiful cars. So, those are the words of Shel Cavale and his 12 successful, 12 rules for successful living. I think that it's really interesting that um, this man went on to become a Zodiac killer suspect, and number one on his rule is trust your gut, and number two is listen to your heart and intuition, because I remember another quotation from an individual named Tom Voigt of ZodiacKiller.com, who once said, uh, someone wrote out something about gut instincts, and he said, Remember, there is no brain in your gut. Just a response, though, and not trying to knock Mr. Q's rules for successful living in any way, just sharing some other things. And I really particularly like this one, number eight. Listen to your friends and family. Just don't listen to them too much. Wow, that is so amazingly true. I wish they didn't give us textbooks in like the 7th and 8th grade when we're in junior high. Just give us this quotation in big, enormous, golden letters some way, somehow, and just drill that into our worldview some way, somehow. Listen to your friends and family. 
just don't listen to them too much. So um, you can see that these are genuine uh, ways to achieve some type of successful living coming from a rather successful businessman. And as I said, most likely the wealthiest and perhaps most successful Zodiac Killer suspect. Shulkafale was born in Norway in 1919, and he uh, came to America at, at the age of 10, I believe, at a rather young age. And from an early time, he was a speed junkie, more or less. He was in just trying to go fast. He In, in his adulthood, he was into auto racing, boat racing, horse racing, and um, at one point in his life, he even unofficially tied the world record for the 100-meter dash that was set by Jesse Owens, nonetheless. So, I've talked a lot about Shulkavale in some previous episodes, including doing a book discussion on Microdelis, A Hunt for Zodiac, but one final point I would like to share is that there is a photo going around on the internet that I even mistakenly used saying that it was Shelkavale, and in fact, it is not. Mike Rodelli corrected me and said that the photo is actually of his brother, Canute Cavale. Canute spelled K-N-U-T-E, and several Zodiac sites have used it in addition to an episode of Black Box Online Radio where I mistakenly used it, and I just wanted to bring about some clarity and show some differences between the two brothers. But I used to do something on this channel called the Versus series, where I would talk about two different serial killers or murderers, or mo mostly just people from the true crime world, anything was fair game. And I would compare and contrast the psychological elements of them, and looking at how these criminals operated, and what really are the differences. And right now I would like to do that with a different serial killer that was never included in the Versus series, and his name is Maury Travis. He was known as the Bi-State Strangler, and I've only briefly mentioned him on BBOR, maybe in an AMA or an episode of True Crime Talk Radio, but not completely in a Zodiac Monday segment, or definitely not comparing him to the Zodiac Killer, because in Mark Hewitt's profile, he talks about how it isn't completely uncommon for serial killers to taunt the police, such as David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Shooter, BTK, Dennis Rader, BTK meaning bind, torture, and kill, and Maury Terry, Maury, not Maury Terry, he's a different guy, Maury Travis tried to do this, except for the fact that he got caught for a particular reason, and that is that he was using something from the internet. And I would like to go over to a particular article to help us out. This one is from the St. Louis Dispatch and was written by Peter Schenkel. It's called Serial Killer Caught by His Own Internet Footprint. And um, I think you're going to see where this is going. June 2002. When the FBI and police tracked down suspected serial killer Maury Travis, they didn't need bloodhounds, lab tests, fingerprints, or standard tools of criminal investigations. Instead, agents simply tapped into the wealth of information that Microsoft and other internet companies keep on people who visit their websites and services. The stunning breakthrough in what seemed to be a difficult case underscored why such an information resource is a valuable thing for police and sometimes for the concerns of civil libertarians to take shape. 
Travis was arrested on June 7th and set in motion two weeks earlier when a post-dispatch reporter received an anonymous letter praising a story profiling a slain prostitute. Accompanying the letter was a map, part of West Alton, and marked with an X to show where the body could be found. After finding a skeleton there, the authorities focused on the map, which appeared to have come from an internet service. Detectives found an apparent match on Expedia.com, according to an affidavit by Agent Melanie Jimenez. On May 30th, Expedia told Jimenez that Microsoft, based in Redmond, Washington, provides the information for its map site. So the FBI, using a subpoena, requested records of any map searches of West Alton made between May 18th and the date of the newspaper story. May 21st was the postmark on the envelope. It took four days to get an answer. On June 3rd, Microsoft reported back that the only one computer had done it. That only one computer had done it. The company said that on May 20th, the computer had zoomed in on the map of West Alton, Missouri at approximately 10 times in a chronological order to end with an exact map of the, an exact match of the map that was sent to the post-dispatch. But Microsoft could provide no name, just an address that is meaningless to most people. It was the Internet Protocol Address, otherwise called an IP address. To translate the IP number, the FBI turned to WorldCom Inc., which provides local telephone numbers to connect Internet services to their dial-up customers. Again, this article is from 2002. And WorldCom assigns an IP address to each customer for each internet session. The question wasn't, who was this number 652271 but who used it at the time in question? The next day, on June 4th, 4th WorldCom's internet division, UUNet, identified the user using it on the evening of May 20th as Maury Travis. And that is how the Bi-State Strangler was apprehended. Maury Travis uh, wouldn't really serve that much time in prison because he went on to commit suicide. And as I said, he was known as the Bi-State Strangler. And he murdered possibly as many as 17 or 18 or even more people, but definitely had 12 known victims. And I would like to read something about that now. I'm just get the most basic introduction of Maury Travis. Maury Travis was an American serial killer. Travis was named as in a federal criminal complaint for the murders of two women. At the time of the murders, he was a hotel waiter and on parole for a 1989 robbery. While Travis claimed in a letter to have murdered 17 women, some authorities were doubtful. Others thought that he may have murdered up to 20 women. He died of suicide by hanging in a St. Louis County, Missouri jail after being arrested for the murder. And there are not only... um known victims, but he was also a sexual sadist and would videotape them. And I think that this just goes to show you the differences with a crime like this and that of the Zodiac Killer. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? The Zodiac would have been busted so easily in the internet era. You saw some guys trying to do some type of taunting thing, sending in a map that he got from Expedia.com, and they were able to trace that back to him. Not exactly effortlessly. Quickly, yes, I mean, comparatively, but it looks like they went through kind of a grueling process in those small amount of days there that it took to apprehend 
Sorry, friends, and I think that that is not really an accident. What that tells me is that the Zodiac would have most likely done something electronically if he had been around in 2002, or how about in 2022, he would have made some type of video or something on TikTok and then easily would have had somebody tracking him down some way, somehow. In fact, he probably would have been trying to slide into some girl's DMs on Instagram saying something like really, really nasty because he's some type of sexually deprived freak, and then that would have been also a way that he would have been caught, and there would just be all these electronic signatures and footprints, but none of that existed in 1969. That's how we got away with it. DNA testing did not exist in 1969, and that is also how he got away with it. So I think that um, the Zodiac was very fortunate to live at the time that he was, and it's a horrible thing to say because he really is somebody who is um, a very, very terrible person. And Classic Chevy Cat was talking about that in the comments section, about maybe in the future would I ever do an episode just calling out the Zodiac for whom he truly, truly was, calling him a coward, calling him a weakling, Someone who would only attack the victims when they were in a defenseless state. And that's really what the Zodiac truly was. A coward and a weakling. Someone who went after the defenseless. And that's probably why he had this type of power, assertive personality type. And we also need to be very, very clear. Psychological profiling is not perfect. And if you would like to read more about that, you can go to my episode, Profile the Psychology of Serial Killers and Mass Shooters, and there's actually a book review of the early parts of Profiled of, by Mark Hewitt that was written by Ray Grant. Again, Tom Voigt is very critical of Mark Hewitt, but he's not the biggest critic. It's actually Ray Grant, author of Zodiac Killer Solved, as well as the novel Zodiac Killer Dreams, and he shared some of his observations about profiled by Mark Hewitt, but one thing that I think everybody, I repeat, everybody is in agreement with, is that psychological profiling isn't perfect, and it isn't going to narrow down the search as easily as we think, because some people are making the case that the Zodiac Killer was somebody who was some type of poorly educated person who was just very well read. And one of the pieces of evidence used for that is that he was someone who had a very rough appearance under the Lake Berryessa hood. And I don't really know if that's helpful. Then we have people on the other side saying, oh, this guy's mega educated. And the Zodiac symbol isn't just a circle with a cross going through it. It's a unit circle. This guy knew a lot about mathematics. And, um, I think that it's just completely uncertain, and this is an open and unsolved case. So, um, you can always share some things that you think. But another big reason why I brought up Maury Travis, the Bi-State Strangler, is that he committed the majority of his crimes within three years, committing at least 12 sexually related homicides in three years. And I think that that really goes to show you that sexually motivated serial killers who are committing sexual acts with their victims are doing so in just somewhat of a more frequent and aggressive process. And 
that is that I think that is very frequent because I've also talked a lot about the Long Island serial killer, and the Long Island serial killer operated possibly between 1996 and 2010, and the list went after sex workers, prostitutes, escorts, whichever label you think is the most appropriate. Sometimes, either once a year, once every three years, there's a murder that took place in 97, one in 2000, one in 2003, very infrequently, compared to somebody like Maury Travis, who is murdering perhaps as many people as the Long Island serial killer in only three years. Am I surprised about that? No, not at all, because this person is acting on sexual urges. And what a lot of people try to insist about the Zodiac killer is that the Zodiac isn't acting on sexual urges, that everything is cold, methodical, and calculating, and that there are reasons why the Zodiac was doing this. But definitely very different than Maury Travis, the bi-state strangler. And now I would like to give a shout-out to Sobek Lord, who sent me something about the Midnight Assassin. And I had never heard of this case before, but last week on the channel I was talking about the show no Most Notorious. I almost said Most Motorious. That goes to show you that people mess up words and letters all the time. Yeah, but I was talking about the uh, podcast Most Notorious and all of their true crime discussions and their guests. And Sobek Lord said that his favorite episode of that program was one where they interviewed Skip Hollinsworth, who is the author of The Midnight Assassin, and I had never heard of this case before, and it's even, this book even has the subtitle, The Hunt for America's First Serial Killer. Some people believe that the first serial killer in America was H.H. H. Holmes, and I have never accepted that. I was like, that might just be some type of legend. H.H. H. Holmes, the guy who had the Hotel of Horrors, but... This one is talking about a serial killer mystery from 1885 that is very similar to some crimes like Jack the Ripper, even, where somebody is preying on women. And in 1885, during the course of the interview, they talked about how there was just an immediate amount of blame that was placed on people of different races at the time, because there was almost just this particular fear that was tied to forms of racism, and that that was just that there's these murder sprees that are going on, but they aren't even looking at the facts because very few facts were even discussed. And yes, a serial killer's on the loose, but people thought that it was connected to exposure to moonlight, even. And um, Skip Hollinsworth did bring up the point that the word lunatic comes from the word luna or lunar, meaning the moon. They thought that too much exposure to the moon made people go crazy, and um, you, it doesn't take too much imagination to think of the serial killer Albert Fish, who would come later known as the moon maniac, and then later on the werewolf of Wisteria, all of those are tied in together. Another basic introduction about the Midnight Assassin, who is also known as the Servant Girl Annihilator, is that he was an unidentified serial killer who preyed upon the city of Austin, Texas, between 1884 and 1885. And the sobriquet, sobri whatever that is, originated with the writer O. Henry. O. Henry wrote some good stuff, by the way. The series of eight axe murders were referred to as the Servant Girl Murders. The December 26, 1885 issue of the New Yorker reported that the murders were committed by some cunning madman who is insane and on the subject of killing women. 
The murders represent an early example of a serial killer operating in the United States three years before Jack the Ripper in Whitechapel. According to author Philip Sugden, The Complete History of Jack the Ripper, the conjecture that the Texas killer and Jack the Ripper were one and the same originated in 1888 when an editor with the Atlanta Constitution proposed this conjecture following the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. And uh, those two were actually murdered on the same night as part of the Ripper's double event. That is something that the Zodiac certainly wouldn't have done. But with uh, this particular set of crimes, yes, the, um, the Servant Grill Annihilator, the Midnight Assassin of Austin, Texas, went on to become a real suspect in the Ripper case, as you heard there. Do I think there's an ounce of credibility to that? No, I mean, these people were afraid of moonlight. They're just kind of throwing around different things together and twisting and messing facts all around. Robert Graysmith even has a book out called The Bell Tower when he says that um, Jack the Ripper was, I want to say, a guy from Scotland who goes to England and then moves to San Francisco. So he's going in the opposite direction. It's not an American who moved to the United Kingdom, or Great Britain, rather. It's um, a guy from the island of Great Britain who moved to America. There's some far-out theories with Jack the Ripper, much like there are with the Zodiac Killer. But some uh, points about these crimes that were uh, taking place is that when I was listening to the interview with Skip Hollinsworth, he said that at one of the crime scenes, they tried to track the killer using bloodhounds. But the amount of blood that was left behind at the crime scene was so overwhelming that the blood just, like, completely encapsulated the bloodhound's ability to smell, and they couldn't track anything anywhere because it, it was just so overpowering they couldn't detect any other sense. So that gives you some perspective on how these crimes were committed, and as I said, the victims were killed with an axe. And once I learned that these were taking place in Texas, I was reminded of a particular theory that somebody had shared about the New Orleans Axeman uh, case, and again some wild ideas out there that are most likely not true, but I'm still always curious what people have to say. This one guy made this YouTube video when he was saying that his theory with the New Orleans Axeman who operated in 1918 and 19 was that he started in 1879 by murdering a couple named the DeFores and um, in the state of Georgia, I believe, and that he went around both the United States and Germany committing these murders for a period of 60 years, going all the way to the Axeman murders, and I want to say that he committed a crime in 1922 as well, but he believes that there was this German citizen who came to the United States, and throughout the entirety of his adult life, he was murdering people in these axe attacks, and I'm pretty sure he also accuses him of committing the servant girl annihilator uh, murders, even though I wasn't familiar with all of the namesakes at the time. I mean, firstly, this sounds like a very real case, and it does sound like there was a serial killer that was on the loose, but it shows you something, though, about the desire of somebody to be publicized. The Zodiac Killer, Jack the Ripper, these people wanted to be noticed, they wanted to be recognized, and they didn't want to just fade into obscurity. Like, I had never heard of the Servant Girl Annihilator, this uh, midnight assassin of Austin, Texas. I had never heard of this person at all until Sobek Lord sent this link to uh, 
an episode of Most Notorious. I also say very clearly that I only learned about the Texarkana Moonlight murders three years ago, and I think I learned about the New Orleans Hexman in my early 20s, about 10 years ago. We definitely don't grow up talking about these people like we do about the Zodiac or Jack the Ripper, or even the Son of Sam, or even BTK, because they really made an effort to get their names noticed and to put themselves into the public eye, and they wanted to be recognized in some way as serial killers who beat the system, defied the law, and also were able to make very taunting things and get away with it. In the internet age, this might happen a little bit less, because people are going to be tempted to use electronic communications, such as Maury Travis, the Bi-State Strangler, who was apprehended rather shortly after doing so. But the final thing that I will leave you with is that, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it goes to show you there are way more homicidal maniacs out there than anyone can originally think. And we talked about some of the serial killers growing up, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, names that everybody would recognize, and of course the Zodiac and Jack the Ripper, but I had no idea that there were so many serial killers in operation, because growing up, the Golden State Killer was out there. Nobody even knew who he was. And that's one of the reasons why Michelle McNamara went through such a great effort to try to get him called the Golden State Killer. Because before, he was known as the East Area Rapist, and then the original Night Stalker, and they're calling him either Ear or Earons, like for the initials. And Earons didn't really resonate with people. East Area Rapist, Original Night Stalker, people weren't paying attention, but you call him the Golden State Killer, and then people know what's um going on. An absolutely horrible crime spree committed by Joseph D'Angelo over um a period of, once again, a rather normal serial killer activity period, about um 1973 or 74 to possibly 1986, and then he may have gone on to commit the Granite Bay murders in the 1990s, so, terrible, terrible people, but he's just an example of um, a serial killer that was not very well known for many years. And then some of the other people I've talked about in this episode, John Arthur Aykroyd or Roger Kibbe, the I-5 Strangler, and then you also find that there's an I-5 Strangler, then there's an I-5 Killer, and they have similar names, but they're very, very terrible individuals, and I think some of them are just almost only recognized within the true crime world. And the famous ones, as I said, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, they aren't even as horrific as some people out there. You read about Dean Coral, the Candyman, terrible, torturous um, behaviors committed. But on the notion of Ted Bundy, I think that he is an example of someone who was also very good at putting people in a false sense of security. Ted Bundy did not have a first-hand connection to all of his victims, and you must have heard that story at some point where he would wear a fake cast on his arm, and he would say something, oh yes, I can't do this because I have a broken arm, and people would go along with him. And I think that that is just very telling. Of course, that's not about his persona, it's about the cast on his arm as, as a distraction, as opposed to people who are just like, Oh, hey, yeah, do you need a ride? Okay, well, I can drive you. Oh, yeah, okay, so, haha, <laughs> what's your name? Where are you from? And then they're just going to be, like, completely gentle and friendly and non-threatening, and they're serial killers. 
So I guess that goes to show you a lot of the kind of misapprehensions that exist are that serial killers are going to be giving you the creeps. Serial killers are going to be people who are very awkward, that they're going to be loners, that they have no friends. And it doesn't really seem like that's true. It seems like they're actually going to put people in a complete false sense of security. But what do you think? You can respond in any way that you would like. Anybody can write the show at blackboxall9preview.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there is always blackboxnid88 on Instagram, as well as visiting any of the links in the description box. And I'll see you over there on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.